Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Goldbranson, Asad Khashki, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. It's the entire Hooniverse. On Shuffle, the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Ian McNeese. Yes, I played Winston Churchill in The Victory of the Daleks in Doctor Who, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. I know I will. Bye now. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club and this time we are not doing our usual task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. We're instead doing a special episode in which we are interviewing the author of the last novelization that we did, which was the fan novelization of Shada, my special guest for today, Paul Schoons. Hello, Paul. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Fantastic. Uh, first of all, I'd like you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, since they may not know you, though if they're Doctor Who fans, they'd be crazy not to, especially if they've watched a DVD or two. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, what can you tell us about yourself? Oh, I've got a few few strings to my bow in terms of Doctor Who things. Most people know me because I helped to find a missing episode of Doctor Who, The Lion, Episode 1 of The Crusade quite some time ago now, back in 1999. And I also have written a book about Doctor Who comic strips called The Comic Strip Companion and a second volume in preparation. Fantastic. I used to run the New Zealand Doctor Who fan club for many years, um, edited its club fanzine called Tie Space Visualizer, or TSV for short, and that ran for about 25 years. Most of the time when the series was off, yes, it kind of kept the flame alive, if you like. Right. And most recently, I, I write for Doctor Who magazine. I do, do a number of articles for them, mostly on the comic strips, but also other subjects. Comic strip, Doctor Who comic strips are my speciality. Mm -hmm. And um, I also do infotech subtitling. I did it for the Doctor Who DVD range starting in 2008 and in recent years i've been doing it for the the blu-rays as well so the most recent blu-ray that came out the colin baker's season 22 has subtitles infotech subtitles by me for venus on Varos and mark of the rani oh fantastic those are my achievements <laughs> awesome so how did you get involved in doctor who originally um i start i'm in new zealand so that's probably an important thing to say and at the time in the 1970s we were about five years behind on television so i was about six or seven in 1975 when john pertwee started screening here guy i was originally from the uk i was born in the uk we moved here when i was five and my mother had watched the same episodes in the UK, obviously, you know, because John Pertwee being five years behind. She got to see the same episodes that they were now screening in New Zealand. She says, oh, I enjoyed these. You should watch them. So mm. it was my mother who encouraged me to start watching. And, you know, a mixture of terror and, 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 and fascination meant that I, I, I kept watching. So Right. 
yeah, I, I became hooked. And from then, you know, <laughs> lifelong fan, really. Absolutely. Like most of us, in fact. Mm. Now, you said in our email exchanges that you actually were more fascinated with novelizations long before you got involved with the New Zealand fan club. Is that right? That's right. Yes. The fan club only came along in the late 80s. Um, obviously, I've been a fan since the, you know, the 70s. My mother, again, is to blame for this. Very early on, she gave me a copy of the Target book, Doctor and the Cave Monsters. Mm. And that was that for many years was the only, well, that's the only Target novelization. I also had a copy of that Making a Doctor Who as well, the, the two books, Doctor Who books I had. Mm -hmm. And so that became something I, I read over and over again. And then I discovered my local library had the hardbacks. So oh. I would I would just, you know, <laughs> continually take those out and read them. And, and you know, <laughs> to the extent the librarian was looking at me suspiciously because I was borrowing the same books over and over again and nothing else. <laughs> so it, it became a real obsession for me. <laughs> and for some reason, it took me a very long time to cotton on to the fact that you could go into a bookshop and actually buy these books. Oh. It wasn't until about the end of 1980. And I know this because I'd just seen Destiny of the Daleks on television. And so that was fresh in my mind. But because Genesis of the Daleks, for some reason, had never screened in New Zealand, so I'd never seen that story. Oh. I knew of it because of the making of Doctor Who, obviously, had a list of all the stories in it. So I knew about it. I just never seen it. And so obviously, Destiny of the Daleks keeps referring back to the events of Genesis. And I was going, well, you know, I'm frustrated not having seen this story. And I was in a bookshop, not looking specifically for anything Doctor Who related, and just saw a big dump bin full of Doctor Who books, you know, display case and i think my grandmother who was with me at the time said well look you know i'll, I'll treat you I'll, I'll, I'll buy you one doctor who book which one would you like and it's kind of like well <laughs> there's genesis of the daleks right there i've got to have that one <laughs> so that became my sort of that was that that was my gateway drug if you know what i mean that's what got me into it because after reading that and i think from memory that genesis of the daleks sort of ends with a sort of footnote see revenge of the cybermen for the continuation of this or something <laughs> and so i go oh, i've got to track this one down right. and honestly it was a slippery slope from there and i just had to have them all <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and i'm thinking in 1980 there probably would have only been about 50 not 50 books maybe so you know it's a fraction of what 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 there are in the whole series but even then it seemed massively daunting to collect them all it was just you know young boy limited pocket money it's kind of like i'm never going to be able to own all these but it came a sort of a, an obsession over the next probably took me about four years to find them all hmm. but yeah it was from about i seem to remember about 84 was when i finally finished all the gaps in my collection and then thereafter it was just a matter of buying each new book as it came out you know so mm -hmm. so I, I i i had a complete set from then onwards so yeah it was an obsession for me i mean and for me the target books coming back to your original question the target books meant so much to me because the tv series was on you watched it once and then you never saw it again and so it's kind of like the target books were the vhs's or the dvds of their day they were the the permanent record exactly you, you know something i could just look up and i could i could reread all over again if i wanted to look up a specific detail and i probably as a young fan didn't appreciate that there were changes you know that they weren't necessarily accurate scripts in the sense if you know what i mean there have been various sort of changes made to them so I, I always regarded them as, as, as the definitive record of the TV story. So to me, I can remember quite distinctly as a young fan watching Doctor Who on television and going, thinking to myself, oh, I wonder how long before there'll be a Target book. <laughs> it wasn't so much it was on television. It was like, how long have I got to wait for this to be a Target book? Because the Target book was the ultimate goal, you know. That's how much they meant to me. Fantastic. And when did you decide that you yourself wanted to novelize the story? I think because I, I I mean I was a very voracious reader and I blame Target Books for that. I, I think an end result of that was like I kind of like got this ambition to be like Terence Dix. Right. Uh, I was kind of like, <laughs> probably like a lot. I, I'm sure my story is not dissimilar to a lot of fans that that Terence Dix basically taught me to read and write. Right. So I I just became obsessed with this idea of how can I achieve this ambition? What do I need to do to become like Terence Dix? That was kind of what was going through my mind as I was obsessing over these books and. I guess what what the pivotal point for me because it all starts with Sharda, doesn't it? That's the yeah. first one that I had the idea to write. 
So it would have been, I would have got that, John, you remember John Mark Lafitier's program guide? The, oh, yes. From about 1981, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the first time I learned it was there was a missing, this mysterious missing story slotted into the Tom Baker stories. And that I became obsessed with that. I only had that details from the, that program guide. And I was kind of like going, what is this really weird story, which for years I thought was called Shader. Right. And so, because I'd only I'd only seen it written down, so for years I was talking about Shader, and so I, I know what it was. I got um, an issue of Doctor Who Monthly, um, issue eighty one. I think it was the very first issue I owned, and that had a very detailed archive synopsis in it of Shader. And I decided, oh, oh, there's enough detail in here. I'm going to have a go at novelizing it. <laughs> and That's so. <laughs> I know, I know. That was really weird, really, because it's not like a script or anything. It didn't have the dialogue. So I don't, I don't know what was quite going through my mind. And then on the other one I did, very early on, is I started audio... I didn't have video recorder, but I started audio recording Doctor Who stories off television as they were screening. And one of the early recordings I had was of Black Orchid. And for years, uh, there was no Black Orchid novelization. It was the only early Peter Davison story that was missing a novelization. That Target book came out very much later. So there was this very obvious gap in the collection there and I was going well you know I'll have a go <laughs> so I actually typed that up in target size I cut the pages to target size and had a manual typewriter and oh my god <laughs> <laughs> I, tra- I sat there and transcribed the story and off off audio and and, and obviously working from memory of, of watching it the thing that sticks in my mind is that um, episode one has that very long sequence where the doctor's playing cricket so you can imagine on audio there's very little to go on right <laughs> <laughs> so but I mean, I, unfortunately, I don't, I, I don't have it anymore. It, it's got lost in, in, in various moves and probably like going, oh, this is pretty crap and throwing it out. I don't know. But <laughs> sad. I mean, it would be fast. I'm sure if I look back on it now, I go, oh, good grief. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not claiming that it was any great work of art, but <laughs> it was my first attempt. Exactly. And everybody starts somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah. And only, I only one other person. I know the reason I did it was it partly because obviously, like I say, I wanted to, I wanted to novelise a, a, a Doctor Who story. That was my big ambition. So that was that was where I was starting. And I had a friend at school who was borrowing the books, much like you're doing on your podcast. He was reading them in television order. So I would lend him to them. I was seeing him obviously every day at school, and I'd lend him a book. He'd go home, read that, bring it back. I'd lend him the next one from my collection, and looking at the story order of them. And it obviously got to the Peter Davison stuff, and I was going, well, you're going to skip Black Orc because there's no novelization. And so I think that was one part of my compulsion was to, to if I'll, I'll novelize a story so my friend can read it. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what he thought of it. <laughs> he was probably quite polite about it. I don't remember. Now, but, right. but that was part of that was part of my impetus. Was I, oh, I'll have a reader. You know, not only will I have something I can slot on my shelf, but there'll be someone who can read it. And this was before the fan club, right? That, that very oh, yeah, first long version. Before. Long before. Okay. Yeah, this is while I was still at high school. The fan club didn't come along till I was at university. Ah, got it. Okay. So how did that come about? How did it come about that you, as part of the fan club, decided we're actually going to do this and we're going to bring on writers like David Bishop and John Preddle and David Lawrence to novelize these and release them? It's quite a long process because I don't think we ever set out to go, oh, let's do all of these books. It was more that, I guess, when I started meeting other fans, when the fan club started... Because for a very long time, I didn't really know anyone who was an obsessive fan like myself. And so that was quite, you know, having spent years and years feeling quite isolated and alone and, and, and solitary in my interests, it was quite an explosion when I of, of interest when I started meeting all these fans who felt the same way about Doctor Who as I did. And inevitably, they had resources and access to things that I didn't. For instance, that's when I started seeing a lot of off-air stories, you know, that hadn't screened in New Zealand and you know, very old stories and that sort of thing. So that was a huge delight. But it also meant that um, I met for the first time my very good friend, John Preddle, and he had a multi-generation copy on VHS of Sharda, which <laughs> immediately sort of ignited my interest from years ago, having attempted to novelize it. And I was going like, oh, oh, this is, <laughs> you know, that, that, that the spark was was reignited, if you like. And he transcribed it for me. He he sat down with the with, with, you know notepad and actually just wrote down the dialogue. And, oh my and the, god, 
That's yeah. insane. I know, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have the scripts. We just all we had was this VHS, this very scratchy VHS, and. And it was one that I think Ian Levine and some friends had put together for a convention in the UK. And whenever there was a missing scene, just screeds of text would come up on screen. It was just like sort of computer-generated BBC microtext. Ah, that version. Yeah, yeah. And so I think John just wrote that out as well whenever there was that missing scene. So, I mean, it must have been an enormous amount of work for him to do that. But then he handed me these handwritten transcripts, and, and, and I just sat down with my typewriter and turned them into a book. <laughs> and so that became the first published version of Sharda, which the fan club put out in, gosh, a very long time ago, 1989, I think was when it was first published. I believe that so, was the date I saw. Yeah. And that's yeah. why he has a co-credit on that one. Is that right? That's right, because he'd done the transcribing. So we agreed that that he, he would he'd be co-credited on that because it was, like you say, he'd done an enormous amount of work. I'd done an enormous amount of work. It just felt, felt right that the two of us should be credited right. together on it. But all the actual writing of the prose the, the, is, 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 is me... But that version doesn't exist anymore, that, that version of Sharda. It was completely junked and started from scratch again because later on we got the BBC scripts. In fact, it was only about six months after we published it, which is really frustrating. <laughs> so John turns up one day and goes, guess what I've got? And he hands me this huge stack of paper and it's photocopies of the entire BBC oh, Sharda scripts no. that he'd managed to get <laughs> off the fan. And I'm going, oh my God, if we'd had these. <laughs> because the thing was, obviously, not only have you got deleted scenes that didn't make it into the video, but all those, also the stuff that was never shot. So all those scenes that were just summarized on, on the video, it was just like a summary. It wasn't actually all the dialogue. Here we had the full scripts. So we could do a proper novelization for the first time. So... Yeah, after my initial sort of like holding my head in my hands and going, why didn't we have these? It was like, well, we've got to do it again. Wow. <laughs> so I basically <laughs> borrowed the scripts off John and just rewrote it from scratch. I just, just junked the entire first version that had already been published and fan club had already done and, and, and just did a completely new version, which was just credited to me because obviously I just took on the whole work myself. And So this was within a year of the other one having come out? I think, yeah, a year or two. I think 91 was when it got, came out, but I was probably started it during 1990. So yeah, it wasn't very long after. Wow. It sounds insane now, doesn't it? It does. You, 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 finish, <laughs> you finish a Doctor Who novelization and you immediately turn around and rewrite it. Right. <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> and how long did it take for the next version? Because there was, I, unless I'm misremembering, there was an intermediate version... And then there's the most recent one, which we read for the podcast. Yes, probably by the you're jumping ahead there, but with with um, the whole set of five novelizations, they all got reissued around 2000, 2001, mm. 2002. And by that point, I had a text scanner because this was a, the original version of two original versions of Sharda were both done on typewriter. So I didn't have them as an electronic copy. And by, by, by about 2000, I'd acquired a, um, text, a, a scanner with, with an OCR program, so optical character recognition, so I could actually just scan the, the typewritten pages and, and create a, a, a digital copy of it. So you know, I thought, right, time to, time to have another bash at this. But this wasn't a complete rewrite, it was just a tidy up. So the version that uh, was published in, in about 2001 and now, now is available online is, is a tidy up of the 1991 edition. As I think I rearranged some of the scenes, I put more chapter titles in, because I think originally I only had a chapter for each episode. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I thought, well, it'd be a bit more like Terence Sticks, it really needs to have like two or three chapters per episode right. to make it a bit more like a... The, the, the intention was to make it like a target book as if it had been published at the time that the other season 17 stories had been. Mm -hmm. So the formatting was very much like of that style. And that's why it's called... I've got it on my desk in front of me. Doctor Who and Sharda. Right. Simply because that, or they were all Doctor Who and something at that point. So mm -hmm. even though it's a bit of a clunky title, that was a, it just felt like that was right to try and emulate that style. Exactly. Now... I guess going back, the big question is, how does a fan club become a publisher of novelizations, even if they're, you know, unofficial fan version novelizations? How does that actually happen? Well, the fan club was doing, like I mentioned, a regular fanzine called Time Space Visualizer. 
and I'd started this fanzine back in 1987 and for a few years it I passed it on to another fan group down in Christchurch who became the... Because the fanzine predated the fan club, incidentally. TSV started first, then the fan club started in another city, and I said to them, well, I'm doing a fanzine. Do you want that as your official fan club fanzine? So the two merged, effectively. They took on the fan club fanzine. And I was going, I'll do special issues for you. I'll do, like, sort of, you know, side projects that, that you can publish under the fan club banner rather than doing the, 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 the regular sort of newsletter fanzine, if you like. So John and I collaborated on a lot of these. We did like a sort of a, a, a encyclopedia, which we call a dictionary, of the um, Six Doctors stories and uh, collections of clippings from The Listener, which was the local version of the Radio Times and things like that. So all, the, all these sort of special one-off and a series of fanzines of short stories called Time Streams. Hmm. And so the, the novelization sort of became part of that output for the fan club. It's just extra things that the members could buy if they wanted. Hmm. And they were just done like fanzines. So they, they, were never, they were never done as target-shaped books. They were always A5, a you know, booklets. Mm-hmm. Uh, standard, you know, they look out, outwardly like, like a fanzine. You know, a, A4 photocopy folded to A5 and stapled. Mm-hmm. So they're not pretending to be the actual target books in any shape or form. And like everything the fan club was doing, it was entirely not-for-profit. We were always very clear about that. No one made any money out of it. So all the artists and all the writers and everyone working on these fan publications just did it for the love, not for the money. So I guess because also being in New Zealand too, we felt like, and this is pre-internet, of course, so it's kind of like, did it really matter if we did stuff that we didn't have the copyright for because we were just doing it for the local audience and no one really knew what we were doing and you know what I mean? It didn't really matter. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it, I guess it just grew out of something that was quite sort of innocent and well-intentioned to, to this behemoth over time. Right. <laughs> so when you say, you know, how did we become a publisher, it was really just the fan club just doing its own fanzines. I see. Okay. And did you ever run afoul of the BBC at any point? Well, the the novelizations are still up online because no one's ever asked us to take them down, which is... <laughs> That's <laughs> Which amazing. is quite surprising. Yes. It is quite surprising. I honestly thought there were two points. When they, the series came back in, in 2005, and that was about the time that we discontinued the, the printed versions and put them up online, it's kind of like going, well, I thought that might be the point where we might get a cease and desist because obviously there were new people who were at the BBC who were taking much more vested interest in copyright for Doctor Who. Whereas before, they probably just turned a blind eye to everything. But no, no one ever approached us about taking them down. I did actually get an um, email from, and I probably shouldn't say who, but someone who, who should we say, had, had a copyright interest in some of the books that we'd novelized. Ah. <laughs> and his attitude was, hey, why have you gone ahead and done these without asking my permission? Which is fair enough. Totally. He was totally in the right to ask that. Mm-hmm. The reason he was asking was that by this point, the books had become so popular that we were selling a lot of copies overseas, just mail order. And it, it wasn't something we'd set out to do. It's just word of mouth had got round and the orders had just built up and built up and built up. And it was just an incremental thing. It wasn't like suddenly we were getting orders for hundreds of copies. It was very gradual. So it's hard to sort of see a point where oh, it's suddenly taken off. It was just a gradual like a couple more orders each week, mm-hmm. but most of them were going overseas. And they'd ended up in a specialist bookshop in the UK. Oh. And a sci-fi collectibles bookshop, not a, not a general bookshop. Right, right. And, and this, this guy had gone into the bookshop and obviously seen, seen a copy of, I, I think it was Resurrection or Revelation on the shelves, right. and gone, I'm not happy. <laughs> <laughs> and I totally, I, I'm not, I'm not in, in the slightest bit surprised that, that he emailed me. That's, I have no objection to his, his upset. That's, that's totally within his rights. And I think I would have reacted the same way if I'd been the writer. He's probably more upset that your novelization's better than his, but... <laughs> his, let's, let's, let's just put some context. His didn't exist at the time. That's true. Had, at that point, it hadn't actually been written. So. That's true. 
Yeah. So <laughs> so I was first. <laughs> but I mean, I, I so I went back and forth with him. I mean, no, obviously I was just trying to sort of avoid any sort of legal wrangle. So I made it very clear to him that what our original intentions were, and it had all got a bit out of hand, and became, we were victims of our own success to a certain extent, where it was only intended for the fan club. And... I mean, in retrospect, we probably should have made a rule that only fan club members were able to buy them, maybe, I don't know, or in hindsight, maybe, rather than just opening up to anyone who wanted to order them. That, in hindsight, that might have been a cleverer way to go. It might have boosted our membership quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> right. But um, so he understood once I'd explained to him what, what, what the story was. And he was grudgingly prepared to let us keep making them available under certain conditions. And I just kind of, it's got to the point now I've, I've upset this guy. I've pissed him off. I, I really don't want to be this person who, who's creating this aggravation. And who's to say that someone else won't come out of the woodwork and go, well, hold on, you're, you shouldn't be doing this. Doug Zadden's agent might have come forward or something like that. You know, I just mm -hmm. felt it's just going to be a lot easier. And especially as my own name was on some of them. Right. <laughs> I was opening myself up to all sorts of problems. I just felt it was just a lot easier just to let them go out of print. So I just basically just as soon as the print run had sold out, that was it. They were just not we're not printing anymore, mm -hmm. and so that obviously disappointed a lot of people who missed out. So the, the argument was, why are you making money out of these? So I had to explain, I'm not making any money out of these. All we're doing is we're charging for printing and postage. There's no money being made whatsoever out of it, and they really were being paid, sold for a very very small amount of money. And but the problem was that people who were buying them were then on selling them on eBay because right. eBay had started by this point mm -hmm. for enormous amounts of money because they were relatively rare items mm -hmm. so it wasn't so much what we were selling them for it's what they were being on sold for that was the issue that was what the objection was the, the enormous amounts of money were changing hands for these books when they were supposed to be non-profit mm -hmm. and i couldn't control the resale market no you know i could I had no control over that i couldn't say to people you can't sell this on ebay you can't sell this in your specialist bookshop so that's where the problem began and I totally, totally understand that. And obviously, in hindsight, maybe I should have done things differently. <laughs> but the, my solution was just to make it f all of those books freely available on the website, on, on the, the Doctor Who Fan Club website, which is where, where you guys have seen them and where they've still been. They've been up there for about 16 years now, so it's a long time. <laughs> and I, almost as soon as they went out of print, we put up the, the online versions. And they are just literally the digital copies of what had originally been in print. And, and so the theory is everyone can read them free of charge. So it should, in theory, take the heat out of the collector's market, these, these vast sums on eBay. But the problem with that, the drawback with that, of course, is that people can now, because the digital text is there, they can create their own copies and sell them. So it hasn't entirely removed the problem, but it's perhaps reduced it a bit. People have actually been doing that. They have. They have. Not, not with any involvement or permission of my own, but obviously it's got my name on them, so it's kind of it's a bit embarrassing. And I have re quite recently had to go online and explain, look, you know, there are these photographs of these, these copy of Sharda circulating. They've used someone else's artwork on the cover, but it's got my name on the cover, and it's, it's, they've obviously just printed out my book and created a proper target size copy and I'm going well it looks like I'm I'm still doing the books I, and I really felt quite concerned that especially given that I now work for the BBC in official capacity I, I felt like I really had to explain myself that it really wasn't anything to do with me mm -hmm. now as far as the novelization of Resurrection goes you told me that it took you a decade to finish that one it seems insane, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Why? I mean, Shada, obviously, you had several bashes at, and yeah. uh, that's why it, that took so long. But Resurrection, why did it take you so long for that one? Resurrection was the second one I was going to do. It was the second one I was going to do after Sharda. Once once Sharda had come out, John and I, John Predle and I, said to each other, "Well, let's do the two Dalek ones." And so he was going. He did. He, he did Revelation and I did Resurrection. Peter Davison's always been my favourite Doctor, so that was my go-to, if you like. That was the story I really most wanted to do out of the ones I hadn't, Target hadn't done. Mm -hmm. So I gravitated immediately to that story. And in a way, that paralysed me a bit because like, I kind of wanted it to be such an, an awesome novelization that <laughs> my ambition for it, I overtook my ability, shall we say. <laughs> so I, I, I wrote a very elaborate extra stuff that didn't appear in the story. You know, I, I started it still while Frontios was still going on, if you know what I mean. So I, I, mm. I 
the, the, the prologue starts while they're still on Frontios and, and builds from there. And 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 it's it just became this enormous behemoth of this this project that I I I just was wanting to put so much into it that I think I just got stuck. It sort of got writer's block with it, and so I just have kept having to put it aside. And obviously, you know, other things got in the way. I at some point um, in the early nineties, I I started doing the the fan club fanzine again, TSV. So I had to make time for that. So I couldn't devote all my time to working on this book. And so every so often I just put it back in the drawer and then when I felt inspired, I'd go back to it. And then the novelization of Remembrance of the Daleks came out and, and I was going, oh, this is how you write a Dalek novel <laughs> because that was so good. Oh, yes. One of my favorite novelizations. And so I went, you know, obviously went back to my book and going, now I know how to write for the Daleks because I've seen this done properly. And so that really influenced me writing Resurrection. And the problem I had is that about the early 90s, mid 90s, reports started to circulate in, in Doctor Who magazine and elsewhere that finally Eric Saywood had signed a contract with Virgin Publishing to do the books, right. do his two books. So from my point of view, there was no point in continuing if that was happening. And so it's kind of like, I'll just stop. This is this is a good excuse just not to do it anymore. And then obviously the news would dry up and I'd go, oh, is he not doing them after all? So I'd get my version out and have another crack at it. And then the news would come back. Oh, no, he is doing them. Oh, no, no, no other writers are doing them for him because he hasn't delivered them. Uh, you know, the, these news, if you look back through those Doctor Who magazine issues in that time, every few months there's another report that, oh, yes, yes, these books are coming out. I remember. <laughs> yeah. So that that stalled for a very long time because there was no way I was going to going to do a version of the the books. I mean, I would never if I'd known the books were going to come out officially eventually, I, I would have never undertaken them in the first place. They were done in the belief that these the target was never going to do them. That the the books were never they were always going to be gaps in the range. So that was always the the, the original motivation behind them. Mm -hmm. So so resurrection was only ever going to be done if there was if we were sure there was going to be no official version of Resurrection. Right. So how did you feel when you actually read his novelization of the story when it came out officially? Well, it was intriguing to see how the uh, the official writer had tackled the same material. Um, it's, it's kind of awkward because I don't want to be as as the writer of one of the versions, I don't really want to be offering an opinion on 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 the other version. I do. It is quite embarrassing that I have had a number of messages from various people and and reviewers as well have made comments that they prefer my version of it, and that to me seems wrong because I'm not. I'm just a fan writing the novelization <laughs> of it, whereas this is the actual author's take on his own story. So that really ought to be the definitive version right so you know <laughs> should we just say they're two different attempts at it <laughs> yeah yeah be diplomatic about it understood <laughs> which is also why i'm not bringing up the official version of shada that and the other sure. reasons for not sure i mean it and, and my, my attitude to that would be much the same although obviously the author isn't actually the original scriptwriter it's still the official sanctioned bbc version of the story so i i, I would never have you know, be so egotistical as to say my version was better. So that's that's for other people to decide how they feel about the two books. Well, I know that some of the listeners to our podcast have said that your version of Shada is better than the other one. Well, that's very that's very flattering, <laughs> but I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. <laughs> now, how did you bring on the other writers, uh, David Bishop and David Lawrence? Because uh, we have read... I, I, I believe we've read David Bishop's version of Pirate mm. Planet already. Yeah, And sure. we'll be doing a David Lawrence book at some point. I can't remember which one we're going to be doing, though. I don't oh, you did you did. Tell you, I've listened to your City of Death once you've done that yes, one. We yes, we did. We yes. did. That's yeah. right. He did City of Death. Yeah. I got my Davids confused. That's all right. <laughs> it's confusing <laughs> having two Davids. <laughs> yes. The Pirate Planet one came around first, I think. And David Bishop was, was a, a member of the, the fan club. He, he was actually a professional writer already, unlike the rest of us who were just fans. 
Um, he was a newspaper journalist, mm. and he had an ambition to to get into writing novels. And basically said he, to me when we met up, he, he was he we'd done Sharda by that point, and I think I was working on Resurrection. And he said, "Look, I'll, I'll do one. How, how about I do one? What, what have you got available? What hasn't been done?" And so Pirate Planet just seemed to be the obvious choice for him because no one was already expressing an interest in doing that. And he bashed it out. He he did it really, really quickly, partly because being a journalist, he's used to writing at speed. Mm-hmm. And also because he was about to immigrate to the UK and he wanted to finish it before he left. So he he probably did the whole thing from beginning to end in maybe a couple of months, which wow. really put my resurrection to shame. <laughs> <laughs> I really felt bad then. Maybe that, that maybe that's what helped us make me give up. <laughs> terrible, really. But um, but yeah, I mean, he did a really great job of it. And David obviously has gone on to be a very successful author. Um, so his, in terms of his, in fulfilling his ambition to be a fiction writer, he he certainly succeeded because he's obviously written a number of Doctor Who official Doctor Who books both for virgin and for bbc books mm-hmm. and um he's now got a series of he was the editor of 2000 ad and judge dread magazine for many many years right and also now he's got a um a very very good series of um historical crime fiction novels first one city of vengeance and they i highly recommend those and he writes under the sort of the semi-disguised pseudonym of a dv bishop just <laughs> and i think that's simply to distinguish from his earlier work he wants to sort of set himself so people don't go oh these are earlier books in the series they're not this as is a new new strand for him Mm-hmm. Understandably, yeah. Pipe Planet was came out about nineteen ninety ninety one, and when we when we reissued them in about two thousand, that got a complete re edit. It started out just as a minor tidy up, like I say, I text scan the 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 typescript, and I got in touch with a good friend of mine who had been writing for TSV. Everyone will know the name a- Andrew Pixley, mm-hmm. and Andrew very kindly offered to go through scripts he had of Pirate Planet which I didn't have access to the scripts. David had done it from a, a, a transcript of the television story and correct all the spellings because obviously there were phonetic spellings in the terms of what the pirate planet has a number of words that Doug Sam's made up for it. And so David had made his best attempt at what he thought the word was in print. Mm. So, so I was going, well, to Andrew, what are the correct spellings of these words? Can you just tell me that much? And bless him, what Andrew did was he not only did that for me, but he went through the entire script and identified all the bits that were different to the television story and transcribed all of those for me. So he sent me this huge document of of script excerpts. And I was going, oh my goodness, we've got to include all this in the book. So I got in touch with David and David, as I mentioned at the time, was editor of 2000 AD back then. And he was very, very busy. He didn't have any time to do anything. So I said to him, look, you know, we'd really like to update your book. Bless him. He said, yes, yes, I'm happy for you to do that, but I've got no time to do it myself. So I said, well, look, I'll ghostwrite the changes. And, he's, and then I'll, get, I'll, I'll send the book to you and you can approve it or not approve it. And, and then he said, that's fine. So, so I wrote an extra 10,000 words of material for Pirate Planet. And so oh, wow. it's a much longer a book than... And not just that, but I think when David did his original version at Speed, either accidentally or deliberately, he cut out bits from the television story. Mm-hmm. So not not only did I install all these deleted scenes, I also installed all the bits David had missed. So, mm-hmm. so it's kind of like it's the most complete version of Pirate Planet I could possibly make. Yeah, I gather that these these script excerpts from deleted scenes also made their way into the official BBC novelisation too, and they're actually quite similar in some respects. They did. As a matter of fact, mm. when we did our episode about it, we noted that, at, especially the the one of us who had actually seen the story said, "Oh, yeah, this scene does not exist in yeah. the televised version, but it's in mm. both of these, so sure. it must have come from the scripts." Yeah, that's that's the reason. Yeah, for that for that two thousand one version we we actually had the the scripts to work from so so that made made the book so much more complete and so that became like our definitive version of pirate planet that's an incredible job because it's impossible to tell where one writer begins and the other ends it's seamless oh that's thank you for thank you for that i was not aware <laughs> of that all you're telling me is that I, I that i managed to write as well as 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 the professional author david bishop <laughs> <laughs> that's what i take from that <laughs> well 
take it as the compliment it's meant because it's definitely that besides you're on the same level as him <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much um the the other one that you mentioned is david lawrence mm -hmm. this is the incredible story of david lawrence david lawrence wrote city of death with no input from from anyone really he just as a as a very young fit he was 12 years old oh my goodness I know, right? And this is 1988, so this is some years before we eventually published it. He he hand wrote a a version of City of Death from memory, having seen the story on television, not recording. He'd actually seen it, and from memory wrote a a handwritten version, typed that up, and then he sent it off to Target Books to see if they wanted to publish it <laughs> at the age of 12. Oh wow. <laughs> Now, obviously, he got back a very polite but firm no, mm -hmm. <laughs> explaining, yes, you are only 12 years old and this, the copyright in this book belongs to someone else, <laughs> which David was quite amused about as a, you know, looking back on it, it was kind of a funny story. But <laughs> later on, David belonged to the, the fan club and he heard that we were doing these novelizations. I think by that time we'd done Sharder and maybe Pirate Planet. And and so he basically goes, well, I've done City of Death. Do you want City of Death? And I was going, well, this is good. This fills another gap. And so David did a, a complete rewrite, obviously. And unfortunately, with David, I, I probably put him through the ringer. I mean, he was probably about 14, 15 by this point. And, you know, obviously, young, impressionable fan. And I just basically kept knocking him back because he kept making all these really elaborate changes because he wanted to write like Douglas Adams. Mm. And so there were long diversions and very silly bits. And, and, you know, I could see his ambition. I could see where he was going with it. And I was probably, in retrospect, too harsh on him. But I was kind of like, David, it's really got to follow what's on television. It's, you know, it's a novelization, not a, not a complete change. So the book went through many, many edits. And eventually, it took five years from, from beginning to end to get, get it published but yes <laughs> i don't think david or myself were, were particularly happy that we took so long over it and, but it finally got published in 92 and um, that was available for a, few, for a few years but then when we did our re-releases in the early 2000s i got back in touch with david and said look i know it's been a long time and how would you this is 10 years later obviously and i was going how would you feel about us reissuing city of death and David kind of like, well, so much more life experience now. <laughs> and I said to him, look, you know, I'm sorry about how I treated you the first time around. What if I just let you do City of Death the way you always wanted to do it? Let Put back all your, all your Douglas Adams sillinesses and just do do whatever you, whatever you like. And David goes, I'll do you one better. I'll do a completely new novelization. Because David was at the time pitching to Virgin Publishing for for doing the new adventures. Oh, he was, wow. that was he, he was actually writing a new adventure and hoping, obviously, because it was a time when Virgin Publishing had an open submission policy, I right. think. Mm -hmm. No, I'm getting ahead of myself. He would have done that some years previously, because we're talking 2001, 2002. By that point, um, they'd obviously lost the license and gone to BBC Books. Yeah. So, yeah, a few years before, in between writing the first version of City of Death and me reapproaching him again, he'd done this submission to Virgin Publishing, which had never gone ahead. So that that's what had happened. Mm -hmm. So David had this uh, this sort of frustrated ambition that he'd wanted to be a new adventures writer. It hadn't happened. He had this half-completed manuscript that hadn't gone anywhere. So when I presented him with the idea for doing City of Death, he was kind of like, yeah, but I'd like to do it as if I was writing it for Virgin. And it was like a sort of a new adventures or missing adventures style book. And I go, yeah, fine. You do. You put your mark on it. You do. You do your version of it. Just, you know, I wanted to keep him happy. Mm -hmm. And and so that's the version that came out. Is, is, so all those elaborate sequences, like the the, the party that you, you talk about on your podcast and things like that, that's all the stuff that David put in when he, he rewrote his, his new edition. And yeah. the big difference was, obviously, David had spent time living in Paris by that point too and so he could talk about the city from a very personal standpoint so when he describes traveling around the streets that's from his you know his actual experience of, of having lived there so it is a very much I think it's one of the best books in the range personally it is um, amazing it is yeah, absolutely it's amazing. so well written yeah, it so was well a very difficult comparison reading that and then reading the James Goss version because they're both extremely fine books but in very very different ways they are yeah it, 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 i i think yeah i would agree with you there i i i'd, I'd struggle to they are as you say different books but i would struggle to rate them 
Mm-hmm. Well, we did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's been a revival of interest in these, right, because of the official adaptations. Have you found that there's been more traffic to the site to look at these since those came out i'm not aware of the traffic figures i don't i don't actually run the website so i'd have to i'd have to talk to the guy who does it for me but i I think there's been a sort of a fairly constant interest over the years it's it's to be honest it's not something i've really thought about once we put them up on the website it's kind of like well they're done and you know you kind of just move on from it it's 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 a project in my past it's 16 years since they went up on the website Mm -hmm. 16 years since they've been out of print so it's kind of like from my point of view it's really past history i've moved on to doing professional work now i mean a professionally published author i do the stuff for the bbc it's kind of it's something that's very much part of my past but every few years like with your podcast they crop up again someone there's a revival of interest and sometimes that's positive and sometimes it's negative Mm. i mean the negatives like i say is when people start passing off our books as their own printings that that that's a little little distressing i did have one incident some years ago which was very upsetting to me at the time where a guy in the uk for reasons best known to himself did versions of the tsv books you know they took he took the text and he published them into book form but he took our names off and put his own name on the cover oh good lord so he passed himself off as the author of these books and he was selling them in his bookshop in the uk that's no i know and i almost i was almost tempted to get some sort of legal injunction against me i got so infuriated about it but eventually with the help of um some very well-placed fans in the uk who were good friends of mine we who who apparently had also been defrauded by this guy we weren't the only ones who were having this problem so fortunately it wasn't just isolated tsv box he was also passing other people's work off as his own that we were able to get him to cease and desist but yeah that was that was a little bit distressing but um yeah, but I, I like to say, for the most part, it's positive. And, and honestly, when the BBC books came out, my first reaction was, well, I can take these down now. I, you know, we don't, they're not needed anymore. <laughs> they're, they're, not, they're no longer fit for purpose. Because as I said to you before, the whole point of the novelizations was only ever to fill the gaps. Mm-hmm. They are effectively missing targets, if you like. So they're kind of, they become, to my mind, they become a bit redundant once you've got the official books out there because you've now got, well, classic series as well, a complete set of the whole run of books. You can read them from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like think, what's the point of them now? But the point, but the reason that I kept them up is partly because, as I said, no one's ever asked us to take them down. And there's also still people who say, oh, I prefer your version or I like comparing the versions and go, well, okay, right. You know, if you, if they make you happy, if someone gets some interest out of them, then happy to leave them up. That's why they're still there. <laughs> Absolutely. And to, to backtrack just a little bit, because mm. I wanted to ask you the story behind finding the lion, because sure. I, I honestly had forgotten that you were involved with that. I knew it back when it happened but yeah. it, it took looking up your biography to remind me that that was mm. in that was something you were involved with how did that happen um a good friend of mine neil lambis who actually <laughs> coincidentally helped out with the uh tsv books he did the original artwork for the first version of shadow we did so that's the big connection there now neil is a very long time friend of mine and a fellow doctor who fan and he's uh been a sort of a on the, on the hunt for missing episodes you know a fairly sort of fruitless endeavor for the most part because obviously the chances of missing episodes being in new zealand is not particularly high although there's always the possibility mm-hmm. and he got a lead for a friend of his saying well i think this film collector friend of mine's got a got a a Doctor Who episode and Neil managed to get in touch with him and it turned out that it was an episode of the Crusade and he, he thought it was called The Lion and Neil's going well that's a missing one <laughs> so <laughs> Neil invited me to go along with to meet this guy um, Bruce Grenville one evening and I went along with Neil simply because I had a video camera and the guy was prepared to let his video off his cinema screen mm. and uh, Neil needed a lift he needed you know someone to drive him there so i was going right okay well let's let's go along and see this guy but you know we were we were slightly skeptical chances of someone in Auckland, new zealand having having a missing episode of doctor who went particularly high to be honest and it just seemed like a fantastical thing and it was a time too when there were a lot of hoaxes around Mm -hmm. you know there were a lot of lot of 
people saying, oh, I've got 10th Planet Episode 4, or I've got this, or I've got that, and it's kind of like going, yeah, you know. Mm. <laughs> that, that cry-wolf scenario starts to set in of like, you know, we're not going to believe you if you have something <laughs> because it's just not very probable. So so it turned out, obviously, as, as you know, that he did have a missing episode, and, and it just became this thing of like, well, we, we need to negotiate very carefully with this guy, and, and we I managed to arrange for him to borrow it and return it to the BBC so they could uh, put it out on DVD. I suppose it was VHS originally and mm-hmm. then DVD later on, So, and hopefully eventually it'll be out on Blu-ray. So. My little claim to fame. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you've become involved with the BBC since then. By doing the invo texts and such. Yeah, and in uh, what have been about two thousand and eight, I think it was, because of doing TSV Time Space Visualizer, the fa- the Doctor Who fan club fan scene, and we got a lot of overseas readers. One of whom was a guy called Martin Wiggins, who worked on the info text for the the DVD range. Mm-hmm. And Martin was promoted to editor of the range and was tasked with getting on board a small group of writer researchers to do individual stories. And he knew my work from TSV and obviously thought that my research and everything was of a sufficient standard that he thought I might be a good a good fit for doing the infotech. So he emailed me one day out of the blue and said, look, you know, would you be interested in trying out for this? Mm. And I was going, oh, my goodness, because I've never even contemplated doing something that complex. Mm-hmm. That really is a very intensely complicated piece of work. And he basically said, well, you know, have a go. <laughs> and uh, he gave me um, plan to fire to do. Mm. And I just went from there and, and, and just kept doing them because he obviously he approved that one, liked that one, gave me another one to do. And it basically involved getting all the scripts, getting as many different versions of the scripts as possible, getting all of the production paperwork that survives, getting time-coded versions of the actual videos, getting any sort of film rushes, deleted scenes, everything, and just combining all this into a into a subtitle track that tells the story of how how the, the that particular serial was made and what it is that you're looking for on screen. So if an actor flubs their line or there's a, a blooper or a deleted scene insertion, all that sort of thing, just, just putting all that into the text. And so I've just done many, many stories now. I'm still doing them for, for Blu-ray. Not, not just that the stories I did originally for DVD are coming out you know, afresh, so I'm getting to a chance to revise my work and update it, but also doing new stories for, um, you know, new classic stories. I, I, I don't work on the new series at all, I should hasten to add. They don't have infotex. It's only classic series stuff, so. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I have to be careful because some, some of the stories I've worked on haven't come out yet, haven't been oh, announced. <laughs> I see. So we're, 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 if I was to reel off the stories I've done, I'd have to be very careful about which ones I said. Because <laughs> 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 we, we tend to work years in advance. I mean, I, I delivered subtitles for a, for a story three years ago now, the first during the first pandemic lockdown, I think. And I was kind of like going, that still has not been announced for Blu-ray. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I think, I th- you know, obviously there's been a, sl- as you probably know, there's been a slowdown with the Blu-ray releases and they've changed the schedules around because of actor availability and everything. So, right. yeah, it- it'll all happen eventually, I'm sure. But yeah. And the fact that you got to start with the Davison story must have been exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think I, from memory, I don't think I got to choose that I started with that, but certainly when, when I'd passed the audition, if you like, and asked what I'd like to do next, I, I expressed an interest in doing Davison. So if a Davison story came up, then I was sort of not, I didn't always get, I didn't get to do all of them. Obviously I had to be shared around with people, but I was top of the list for a lot of them. I did, Almost all of season 21, for instance. Everything from The Awakening through to Keizu oh, and Zani oh. is my work. Wow. So some, some good stuff in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a huge advantage for me with that was I was working on one of them, I think Frontios. Mm-hmm. And very, very quickly, they, they decide, the BBC decided to do those revisitations box sets where they did special editions of some of the DVDs. Yes. And they needed Resurrection of the Daleks at short notice. And I was going, and they're going, we need you to, well, you know, you obviously you've done other season 21 stories. So this is, you're the perfect fit to do this, but we needed in like sort of three weeks time or something like ridiculous <laughs> like this. And I was going, oh God, it's just, you should take me a couple of months, you know, in between doing other work to do one, for instance. So it's quite a time frame. 
And I thought to myself, at first at five, I thought, oh, I can't do that. And then I thought to myself, no, hang on. You've already novelized the story. You know the story backwards. You know the deleted scenes. You know all the nuances of the plot. You've got a head start on this. Because having done the novelization just gave me that advantage, I think. Mm-hmm. So if, if, I, if I'm thankful in terms of my professional work for anything to do with the novelizations from years ago, I think that that, that was a big leg up. So, yeah. so yes, I was able to do Resurrection in rec- record times simply because... Because having done the novelization, I could eventually quote the story. <laughs> off, you know, I was about to say I've I've translated a couple of novels from the French, and whenever you do that, you get inside the story so completely that yeah. it's actually quite easy to recall it later on. <laughs> Absolutely. Even I mentioned right back in the very beginning when I did that novelization of Black Orchid when I was still at high school, a few years ago I was doing a... I must have done... I was, I was dubbing off a copy of the story. I can't remember. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. But I had it on in the background with the sound turned off. And as I you know, kept catching out of the corner of my eye, I'm going... I know exactly what they're saying. <laughs> so that memory of doing the novelization had stuck in my mind to the extent that I actually knew the dialogue. It was quite weird. So I think that helped with resurrection too, that it, it, you kind of, it never really leaves you. Once you've done something in that tense level of novelizing something, you, you retain a sort of a, a, a programmed in memory of the story. Mm-hmm. Of the two of them, which one do you prefer most? Of, of your novelizations of Shadow and Resurrection, yeah, they're quite different approaches. I think. I think, and this this is the point that comes up in listening to your podcast too. Shada is deliberately intended to be very much a this is how it would have happened on screen. Mm-hmm. It's not very much embellished at all, and that's quite deliberate. Mm-hmm. Part two reasons for that. One is when I novelize Shada the VHS wasn't out. So basically, if people were buying the book, they were buying it because they probably didn't know Sharda at all. So I didn't really want them to have to read the book and go which bits are Paul Schoons and which bits are actually Douglas Adams, you know, which bits were actually on screen, which bits weren't. So I didn't want to sort of create that confusion. I wanted to say to people, this is the story how it might have been if it had been televised, if it had been novelized, if it had been completed. Mm -hmm. So it was deliberately a like a sort of a, a standard Terence Dix, if you like. That was that was always the case. And the other reason for doing that was that the thought of actually trying to emulate Douglas Adams' style in prose was just way too intimidating, sure. way too difficult, and, 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 and prone to be a complete disaster. So I thought, right, no, just just be very careful. Let the dialogue speak for itself. Let, let Douglas Adams' very funny prose just just sing out of the page without any embellishment from me don't don't try to sort of be clever with it just just tell it how it was so when people say about my version of Sharda, well it is very bland it's a very Terence Dix approach to it that that is quite deliberate so I make I make no excuses for that that's exactly what it was intended to be and I'm happy with how it turned out in that respect (laughs) so the total different approach with Resurrection was People can go and watch Resurrection whenever they like. It's, you know, it's, it was on VHS. It's now on DVD. It's just basically, it's not a story that needs me to explain to anyone what it is from scratch. So, you know, as a faithful adaptation, shall we say. Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to tell the story exactly as it appears in the script. So I felt that I had open license to just do the version that I wanted to do. And partly, like I said before, it was inspired by Remembrance novelization where there's all these extra embellishments in there which aren't in the television story. And I thought, I can do this. You know, I can put all these little bits in here and, and develop the characters and give give other people names that didn't have names in the television story, mm-hmm. rearrange the scenes into a better order. I mean, I think very early on, there's a whole scene in the prison station which is told in flashback. Yes. Because I just thought, well, it's... It, it, it's kind of like it's all a bit clunky, so can I make it flow a bit better? Let's just, just put this into flashback. And I had scenes written from Davros's perspective where he's waking up, and I'm going, "This is just, you know, this is stuff you could never get on television." Mm-hmm. So I just went, I, I just went whole hog and just, you know, I'm, go, I'm going, to, going to make this a really, really. I don't want to say I'm going to blow my own horn here, but I, yeah, it, it, it is a very much more detailed and and nuanced novelization than the television version. I think mm-hmm. whether it's more whether it's more successful or not is is not for me to judge, but it's certainly it's certainly one I'm quite proud of. I think, mm-hmm. and rightly so. Mm. 
Now, two David Fisher novelizations have just yeah. been released mm -hmm. because Fisher was notoriously dismissive of Terrence Sticks, and those have been re-released from audio versions that David Fisher did before his death. So there appears to be the possibility of writers going back and revisiting novelizations that have already been done. And if you were given the option of going back and looking at, say, an existing novelization and saying, hey, I think I'd like to have a go at that. Are there any stories that you would choose? Any novelizations in the target range that you think are not as strong as they could be and they could possibly be better? The immediate one that springs to mind, and it's not one that I would want to write, but I'd really, really love to see the original author revisit it, is Warrior's Gate. Mm -hmm. Because I'm a huge fan of Stephen Gallagher's work. His novelization of Terminus if far, far surpasses the television story. Mm -hmm. And the, as, as you're probably aware with Warrior's Gate, that the version that we got from Target was hacked to pieces. Yes. That he was told to cut it way down because it was hugely over length. Now, I believe that the full version has been released on audio, but, and, and just like with the Day of Fisher stuff, surely that makes it a prime candidate to make it a a target book so I'm fingers crossed that that's going to happen because yes. that would just be awesome it I would. so much want that to happen so much want. if there's one Doctor Who book I really want to come out it's that one <laughs> um, I don't know I don't know I think if you were if I was in charge let's be hypothetical about it. not so much me writing the books because I think that's a bit egotistical of me I don't necessarily think I'm good I'm a good enough writer to, to go back and do the you know, the, the books I did for many, I haven't done any fiction writing for a very long time now. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm very much a nonfiction researcher now. So I, I, I would say to myself, oh, not so much was I a writer. Hypothetically, if I was in charge of the target range at BBC Books now, I think I'd be more inclined to focus on getting the new series stories out. Yes. The ones that have never been done before. But there is also a part of me. I don't know. There's there's a few there's a few books in the range where I kind of feel like you know it would be nice to have a more I don't know is this maybe OCD of me to have a more traditional version of it how 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 it actually was on screen and the massacre for instance bears oh. no resemblance to the to the television story or or the Romans. Mm -hmm. I hate to say it because I absolutely adore the novelization, but what about the Daleks? I mean, that's a very different version <laughs> from the. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> I mean I love the. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love David Whitaker's adaptation, but it's completely different to what you see on screen. <laughs> um, I, mean, I, I there's there's also, I mean, there has been done, hasn't it? The the um, Nigel Robinson did a did a new version of Unearthly Child that that hasn't actually come out, but uh, yes, but but yeah, it's it, there are. It is fascinating to think about revisiting some of them. Also, too, I mean, there are stories... Oh, gosh. <laughs> the, the ideas are springing to my mind as you, you put this question to me. Um, Kinder. Yes. I mean, it's a very, very, very bog-standard novelization from Terence Sticks that does absolutely nothing with the story whatsoever. And yet it is a beautiful, beautiful story that needs so much embellishment. I mean, <laughs> is Christopher Bailey still around? Would he prepare to novelize his story? That, that would be, would be marvelous, wouldn't it? Yeah, and same with same with Snake Dance. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's obvious on the page that Terrence Sticks just doesn't get the story, and yet yeah. he's still doing his best to try to novelize it as. Oh, best let's he can. let's let's be fair to Terrence Sticks. He was a very talented, very professional writer, but he was basically being given tight deadlines, tight word count, and a script, and basically said, "Go for it." Yeah. So I, I think just the production line nature of it meant that he was reduced to just doing the bare necessity to get them out on time, I think. Mm -hmm. There were years where I think he was doing every single book. You think that's a very tight turnaround. Yeah. If you've got, say, only a month to do each book, you don't have a lot of opportunity to do more than just take what's on the page on the script page and turn that into prose. Definitely So I don't, I don't blame Terence for doing the job he did. I, I, it just seems a shame in retrospect that a lot of the stories that are rightly sort of regarded as quite wonderful are quite, is bland the right word? I don't know. They're a bit sort of perfunctory on the page sometimes. Mm -hmm. And continuing in the speculative mode, since you mm. brought up the BBC should probably concentrate more on novelizing stories from the new series. Mm. What do you think is an unnovelized story that would be uh, just a good candidate for them to tackle next oh gosh 
it's so it's so easy to go to the ones that that are, are some of my favorites from the new series and mm -hmm. i'd love to see them do um vincent and the doctor i adore that story oh, yes. uh um especially if richard curtis did it oh. I, mean, I, don't, I, 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 don't, I don't know if he prepared to do it but you know <laughs> neil gaiman i'd love to see neil gaiman do his scripts oh that would be amazing I mean, yeah. Are we are we talking in the realms of fancy here? Because I'm not quite sure whether Neil can be prepared to do that work. But. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, he seems to have yeah. a special place for Doctor Who in his heart. So yeah, he'd sure, probably do it. sure, sure. I, I I can't imagine him being happy with anyone else doing it. Put it that way. Right. So exactly. so yeah, we we can live in hope. <laughs> yes, we can. <laughs> so those are, those are ones that immediately spring to mind. But honestly, I mean, there's 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 a part of me, and, the, and this comes back to the very same thing that I was talking about about wanting to fill the gaps in the range. There's a part of me that just would love to have all those stories as target novelizations on the shelf. Mm. I mean, and we've got to the point now, like we were back in the seventies, where there's so many stories that haven't been novelized. It's just there's just there's a, there's a wealth of material still to be done. Yeah. And, you know, and I know. <laughs> If someone ever said to me, oh, you did those novelizations, would you like to do an official one? Of course I'd say yes. <laughs> but I don't I don't for a moment think that I'd ever be asked. It's just, it's it's not, not in my wheelhouse. Oh. Yeah. And personally, I'm terrified that they should ever do that because that means that my podcast will go on for decades. <laughs> <laughs> will you, where, where are you going to stop? Are you going to do the, the, the new series target? We are. We will end up doing all of them until we run out of them. And if they mm, keep I was going to say, you don't this, know when you're stopping then. No, no, we really don't. We know that we'll <laughs> but, be going at least until the end of the 2020s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is insane. <laughs> I'm, I'm really looking forward to you getting into the, 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 uh, the, the, you know, the J&T era stuff. The, uh, yeah. I mentioned like Warrior's Gate, Full Circle, Legopolis. I absolutely adore those, those novelizations. Um, I can remember as a young fan of Target, absolutely loving Christopher H. Bibmead's novelizations of Legopolis and Castor of Alba. I thought they were utterly fantastic. Yeah, and I find his version of Frontios to be better than the televised version. Oh, oh, Frontios is one of my favorite stories anyway, and the novelization is just superb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, oh, we'll probably have to have you as a guest to discuss oh, that. Oh, I, 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 would, I would love to come and rave about some of my favorite books. Fantastic. <laughs> I, I'm always happy to talk about Target. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again for being willing to do this with us, Paul. Very oh, much you're appreciated. Most welcome. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we'll be looking at one of those David Fisher novelization re releases when we look at The Stones of Blood. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.